Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and Ion RT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to a bonus episode. My name is Naman Jorka Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. So this episode is part of the public engagement project funded by the Beacon Bursary Scheme at the University College of London. So we're incredibly lucky to be part of this project that has brought six young adults who've had radiotherapy together with radiation researchers funded by Cancer Research UK, Radnet, City of London to record special episodes of the podcast. So these episodes will give each young adult a chance to share their stories and also have important conversations about cancer research and patient involvement in research. Um, so hi Michaela, hi Patricia, how are you? Hi, hi, thank you so much, I'm good. Uh, so Patricia, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, hi everyone, uh, I'm Patricia, I'm a PhD student at University College uh, London. Um, thanks for having me. Hi Michaela, do you want to introduce yourself and then if you feel comfortable to sharing your cancer diagnosis and treatment? Yeah, sure. So I'm Michaela, I'm 22, I'm a medical student at the University of Edinburgh right now. Uh, so I was diagnosed uh, with Hodgkin's lymphoma when um, I was in my last year of high school. So that was like September 2020. And then I went on to have chemotherapy for a few months and then 2021 towards the beginning of the year I had radiotherapy too and now I'm in complete remission so that's great. Had you known much about radiotherapy before you went for treatment? No I didn't at all and especially after chemotherapy um, for me at least it was a really harsh experience so I remember one of the first questions was um, like, is it going to hurt? Because I know from my family, someone had radiotherapy. Um, it was my grandma and she didn't talk about it. So um, I just didn't see when I couldn't really imagine what it was in the way that like, how does it feel? I know it's radiation. Is it going to feel like it's going to burn me or something? So I feel like these very basic questions um, weren't answered beforehand by anyone so I didn't really know what to expect. That's really interesting especially as you'd already kind of gone through that diagnostic pathway and through chemotherapy and yet there wasn't any kind of 
any way in which someone could have allayed those fears before you actually got to radiotherapy. Did you find that when you did go for your radiotherapy planning appointment, that it was at that point that radiotherapy was addressed? Yeah, absolutely. So I was um, treated in Czech Republic, so maybe it's different in the UK. But what I had was first with my oncologist who was doing chemotherapy. He mentioned that with my type of cancer, they usually uh, do, and it's in the plan to do radiotherapy, but that all of this information will be uh, given to me once I go for a consultation with the radiotherapist. So he didn't really talk about it much. And to be honest, I didn't really ask him about it because my mind was on chemotherapy. So maybe it would be addressed if I asked, but I just didn't have it in my mind. So that's when I found all of my information. And also I had proton radiotherapy, which is different from photon. So that was also different, which we were trying to address if we can do that. Michaela, can I just ask a bit of a weird question? Do they have like a public service NHS in the Czech Republic or is it all private practice? Yeah, absolutely. It's public. Uh, I feel like it runs a little differently, especially for me. What was great that the waiting times are uh, like shorter here. So basically, um, I know that I got diagnosed on Friday and my uh, biopsy was on that day and then I started chemotherapy a week later so everything was like in a run and it was going very smoothly but everything is funded by the government. That's definitely different to what a lot of our patients are currently experiencing unfortunately in the UK that that is really speedy. Michaela how did you get diagnosed if you don't mind me asking? Yeah so I feel like it's really interesting that in a way so my tumor was quite large I think as it's large it it was like nine times 15 centimeters in my chest. So it was, it was there for a while. And I've been having some uh, shortness of breath, but I don't think I really mentioned it to any of my doctors. And then during summer 2020, I got a really bad flu. So my GP thought the shortness of breath, which got really bad, was associated with it. And that's been going on for a few weeks, like three weeks. Then I went to a chiropractor because I used to do a lot of sports. So I felt like maybe it's because I have like blocked ribs, which used to happen to me beforehand. Uh, and when he picked me up, he said that something, it, it just feels weird that I shouldn't be having all of these issues. So he was actually, it was a private chiropractor. So he was the one who actually told me I should get um an x-ray like as soon as i can so that was on thursday i went to get an x-ray thursday afternoon then um there was a mass on my x-ray which was the the information was given to me right away so i started calling my mom because i don't thought it was a cyst on my lungs or something because it was in my chest area she got scared that it was going to be lung cancer and then I went for a CT like right that evening. Fortunately, it was very quick. And they told me it's most likely Hodgkin's lymphoma, which I had no idea what it was. I remember asking, is Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer? What is it? Like, what is it? And nobody was able to answer me. Or at least I feel like they, they waited like six, seven minutes talking about maybe it could be something different. But nobody said, yes, Hodgkin's lymphoma is cancer. And for me, that was just... I had no idea what to expect. And I was like, I just want the answer. Is it it? What should I expect? So it was kind of like all, all very quick. 
yeah. Do you think your experience of having had treatment will shape you um, moving forward as a, a clinician? Yeah, I feel like for sure. Uh, I would say from the positive side with empathy and understanding just how little you can do which affects someone's whole maybe even course of treatment especially with chronically ill patients they usually what they have is they don't want to bother you and they get that feeling very quickly because they feel like everyone's taking care of them like their family their friends that people are feeling sorry for them so at least that's how i had it i didn't want to bother anyone and thus i was scared to ask or ask for favor uh, medical professionals but when they informed me right at the beginning like don't feel scared to ask me for anything i'm here for you absolutely that changed the way i looked at the treatment so when a nurse said that to me when i was having chemotherapy i had a completely different relationship to her throughout my whole course of treatment so i feel like all of these very subtle things which you do when you're busy and i understand that so many healthcare professionals are very busy and under stress that like i feel like i'm gonna be watching over a lot what i'm saying because i know it can affect a lot Patricia, what made you want to be a cancer researcher? Um, so to be honest, from the very beginning, since I was a child, I was always interested in medicine and human diseases. Very curious why we're affected by um, different medical conditions. And this journey eventually led me to start my um, bachelor's studies in biology. Uh, where I developed interest uh, in the cancer biology and its molecular underlying mechanisms. Uh, uh, what motivates me the most is the fact that we still have a lot of uh, work to do as scientists um, to help patients who suffer from cancer. So as we know, uh, we have different types uh, of tumors and um, different, and within the types, we have different subtypes of tumors. Um, so let's say when we considered, so consider two patients afflicted um, by the same form of cancer, their responses to the therapy can drastically differ. Um, so one of the patient will respond well to the traditional therapy, while the, the other patient unfortunately will develop um, refractory uh, disease, meaning um, they don't respond to the therapy well, or uh, eventually um, experience a relapse. So for these patients, we need really, really need to uh, work as a scientist um, to improve the clinical outcomes. And that what motiv motivates me the most. Um, so after my after completing my um, bachelor and master degrees. I started an internship at the University of Virginia uh, under the guidance of Professor Merti Mayo. I was working on non-small cell lung cancer and I basically fell in love <laughs> with the cancer biology uh, area. I, um, I gained a valuable experience how to think scientifically, how to formulate the right questions, aiming that we can improve the, the clinical outcomes of the patients who suffer the cancer. 
Um, and now here I am at the University of College London uh, doing my PhD. Uh, my PhD project focuses on combining radiotherapy and the CAR T-cell therapy in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, and I'm working along with my supervisors, Dr. Claire Roddy and Dr. Martin Pula. Patricia, how would you explain what lymphoma is to Michaela? So, um, lymphoma is uh, the type of tumor that um, form from our uh, lymphatic system. And there are two main subtypes uh, of lymphoma, non-Hodgkin lymphoma and Hodgkin's lymphoma. So um, the main difference between Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is uh, from the histopathological uh, point of view, um, is it the, the Hodgkin's lymphoma, it contains the, the cells abnormally large B, uh, B cells uh, with multinucleated, um, sorry, <laughs> abnormally large multinucleated B cells um, called uh, Steinberg cells. And that's how we, uh, how we can differ uh, the diagnosis from the Hodgkin's lymphoma and the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, the other, um, the other aspect is um, that the Hodgkin's lymphoma, fortunately, the patients um, who suffer with Hodgkin's lymphoma, they um, usually have favorable uh, outcomes. So they do respond well to the chemo and the radiotherapy. Um, however, with the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, we have, a very, like, we have many subtypes of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And um, there, this is a very heterogeneous disease and unfortunately, not all of the patients respond well to the therapy. So um, I would say, um, based on what we know uh, from the clinical standpoint, around 60% of the patients in, for example, in diffuse large PC lymphoma, which I'm focusing on, 60% of the patients will respond well to the initial uh, first-line therapy, while 40% of the patients, unfortunately, um, don't respond well. And that's why we're trying to find a novel approaches to um, basically help them um, and get them in the remission. Patricia, what determines whether or not someone's going to respond well to treatment or not? Is it all around genomics? Um, so, yeah, there is a lot of... Uh, the, sorry, <laughs> the whole the whole world actually is shifting towards the personalized medicine, right? So um, we uh, do a lot of studies that we're trying to find um, the specific markers and the specific um, molecular uh, mechanism that will uh, tell us. Uh, if the patients will respond to the therapy or will not respond to the therapy. So um, for the diffuse large basal lymphoma, it's a very heterogeneous disease. And usually what happens with, in the, with the patients who don't respond well to, uh, well to the therapy, it's the fact that um, there are many, um, many different cell subtypes and we have a hostile micro tumor microenvironment, which means even though if some cells will be killed by the chemotherapy or and 
or radiotherapy, um, it's there's there will be still some population of the cells that will be resistant. And when you're obviously studying the impact of radiotherapy on the cells, you know, how effective is radiotherapy as a treatment? And again, you know, when we think about the radiobiology and the genomics, do you envisage that potentially there will be that optimization of personalized treatment management for patients based on on how we feel that potentially they may respond specifically to radiotherapy? Yes, so uh, lymphoma in general, they're quite sensitive to the radiotherapy. Um, And in my particular project, I'm um, focusing on combining the radiation and the CAR T-cell therapy because radiation not only kills the tumor cells, but also can change the tumor microenvironment into what we call a hot tumor microenvironment, meaning that um, it will allow the immune system to recognize um, the, the cancer cells and help with, um, oh, sorry, <laughs> and help with, um, with the, by combining those two treat, treatment therapies, um, improve the, the, the clinical outcomes. Wow, a bit mind-blown, but also extremely interesting. So thank you for explaining in so much detail. I just wondered, Patricia, how, how do you find engaging with patients when you do all this sort of work? Yeah, so uh, I have to have to say this is my first time with the um, patient engagement, and I'm very, very glad that I was invited um, to take part in this great initiative. Um, I would say there are many reasons why this is important to um, for us researcher to engage with the patients and um, from the patient's perspective I would say that we're living in the world um, where the access to the information is very easy however it has the disadvantages and advantages um, every day we're bombarded with an influx on information unfortunately a lot of information is fake and um, it's um, and please correct me, Michaela, if um, I'm wrong. But I think it's a natural process um, that people who get diagnosis of uh, of the cancer are terrified. They have a lot of questions. They're basically there is basically a lot of going on in their minds, and um, that's why it's paramount to know where to seek help and who can answer these questions, uh, dispelling the doubts and addressing the concerns. So of course, I would say um, the first advice is to talk to your doctor or healthcare professionalist. Um, like if you get the radiotherapy, talk to your therapeutic radiographers, um, discuss your concerns. But we know sometimes it can be overwhelming. The healthcare system uh, is overloaded, uh, to be fair. And that's why it would be beneficial to engage with the researchers. Uh, From our uh, perspective, from the researcher's perspective, it's very, um, very important to engage with the patients because it gives us another insight, like another perspective. 
uh, we of, of course we know why we're doing it but sometimes we're basically <laughs> closing our labs spending many hours uh, there working we have the same aim but um, talking to patients uh, can give us a valuable lesson and also um, Secondly, this um, engagement, patient and uh, research engagement is very important because um, we have a lot of clinical studies. So um, by participating in, in, the, in the, these clinical studies, clinical uh, trials, individual can benefit from new novel uh, therapeutics um, regimens and uh, which are most mostly unique tailored to, to their uh, specific nature of their uh, cancer and leading to hopefully better outcomes for those patients. It must humanize the work that you do in a lab when when you're kind of looking through a microscope at the cells. I don't I don't know I might be putting words in your mouth and correct me if I'm wrong but having like the thought of Michaela going okay she's now in remission and you know the consequences of the research years of research that's gone in to you know ensuring that the treatment is correct that it's accurate the dose is correct the number of fractions the chemotherapy regimes you know the timing of all of the treatment pathways it must it must almost drive you to want to find a cure for cancer or want to be at least improve outcomes um, from a lab perspective. Do you do you kind of have those thoughts in your head when you're doing your work now compared to previously before you'd got patient engagement? Or had that always been something that you kind of visualized thinking, thinking of my patients? Or did you just focus on the cells? So uh, that is the part that always motivate me the most. Um, in my head, there is always a question, okay, what can we do? What can we do for those patients? Um, if we can improve a little bit, because obviously we're not gonna cure cancer with all the cancers, with the same drug, with the same type of treatment. Like I said, there are many uh, subtypes underlying molecular mechanism that differ from patient to patient. So um, yes, to answer your question, um, even before that uh, engagement uh, with the patients with Michaela, uh, which I'm very glad to do, um, I always felt like this is, this is what I'm doing is important because we want to help patients. It's not, we are not doing science for science just to you know just to answer some questions and and that's it um, especially in translational research um, so I, I believe that uh, many researchers are actually driven by uh, you know motivation to improve the clinical outcomes um, yeah Michaela, is there anything you want to ask Patricia? <laughs> I think she mentioned most of the stuff that I was quite curious about. I just wanted to add that um, I felt very similarly coming uh, to this project um, with Patricia because I was thinking that it's really important for her and other researchers to understand that 
and show the appreciation towards them because um, clinicians are usually the ones who see the positive outcomes of the treatment. But I feel like it's really important for them to understand that like all the patients, um, I do feel like uh, even though it's not mentioned as common life, you really do appreciate so much which was done. And when I saw the, um, as I mentioned with one of my family members who had cancers, like when I see the progress to in the last 20 years, it's huge. It's I was just very, very appreciative of how far the science came and how easily, relatively easy the treatment was therefore for me. So I just wanted to say this to Patricia and like all the people who are here and need some type of motivation. It's very appreciated. So Michaela, um, what's the impact on your life in terms of having radiotherapy? Do you have any side effects? You know, what's it like living in remission, but I would imagine having that fear of it, it returning? Um, and obviously, as your knowledge increases going through med school, does that also create some anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, um, I saw radiotherapy literally as holiday after chemo. I was like, this is great. I'm getting treated, but I don't feel anything. So even though I was tired, and but I didn't have any physical effects. I didn't have any burns. I didn't feel nauseous or anything. So I was just literally cruising through my day, going in the morning, laying down on the table. Like it was, everything was getting done for me. So I felt really positive about that. But then of course, I would say it was combination from chemo and radiotherapy. I did have a lot of um, memory problems and a lot of um, just, I was tired all the time and usually symptoms which you don't see. So other people very quickly realized, oh, I must be healthy because my hair was growing back and I was starting to look more like me. And then when I got to university, I remember within the first week, of school, I got a panic attack of thinking everyone thinks I'm healthy, which is great. I want to be healthy. I want to feel healthy, but I still have some reservations in what I can do and cannot do. And I saw those differences very quickly. And I was questioning, can I do this? Do I have the mental capacity I know I used to have, but do I have it now? Is there going to be anyone in a way like asking me if I'm okay with doing this like if I can get any help so I remember having these fears and of course during lectures I'm starting my second year now so I've only had one year of medical school but during lectures of course when uh, teachers mention oh this is the side effect and I can recognize this very easily and then they mention, oh, well, this patient 20 years afterwards, they had a back pain and they're, they relapse and so on. I, I feel like you can't really help but associate with all of these medical cases. And also with people I know who had cancer and had very similar cases, it just gets, gets you into quite some anxiety, I would say. There's a lot of personification, like personalized information in there, I would say. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I think triggers are always going to be around, aren't they? And especially if you're relatively recent to finishing treatment. I suppose with the, the lecturers and your friends and the environment that you're in, have you tried to almost highlight that you've had treatment or have you tried to keep it quiet? 
I'm just trying to think how if somebody else was in a similar situation to you in the future, how could they navigate these sort of triggers and environment that you're going through? Yeah, absolutely. What I did was I um, informed my medical schools or basically some um, the um, help for students, which is there. I just was in contact with them and they were great. They were very super. They still are very supportive. And they say, if you feel like anything is triggering, we can take care of that. We can make sure you don't have to go to these lectures or you can prepare or anything. But um, with classmates, I have some great friends and they know about my um, diagnosis. However, I maybe it's uh, a problem with my experience. I don't think everyone has it like that, but I always feel like I some information is important for me sh to share, but it doesn't have to be comfortable for others to hear. So I'm always trying to learn this balance between when can I share, when should I share, um, because for other people it can be triggering. So I'm always trying to think of that as well. And especially during cases, for example, in medical ethics, when we had similar cases and I felt like I had something to say, which potentially could benefit someone. Um, in a way, I always feel bad afterwards because I was like, this is not about me. I shouldn't be talking too much about my experience. So I feel like for me, it's very hard to get that balance. Oh, but overall, when I get the feedback, of course, nobody feels like that. It's just me overthinking. Can I ask, Michaela, why do you think you shouldn't talk about your experience as much? Um, in a way, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think about it because I know I talk to a few people who feel similar and from the other side, it's not seen as, as that from other people. But I feel like I don't want to um, push my experience on others too much because I don't want them to feel sorry for me and I don't want them to feel like they should feel sorry for me. I'm trying to make sure that I'm trying to inform them with something which I feel like could be beneficial for them. But also not cross the line of them feeling them feeling like they should feel sorry for me so that's where the line crosses and i feel like it's very common so yeah michaela you're going to make the most amazing doctor because from what you have said your empathy and compassion for other people despite you being the cancer patient is off the scale so I would encourage you to when you want to share your experiences and try not to to kind of consider other people's emotions because actually I think people learn so much from you and that's kind of the whole point of this this whole project isn't it because our learning absolutely in the lab or through literature uh, systemic reviews or potentially through radiotherapy trials um they're very important but we learn so much from patients like yourself sharing their experiences and it is so powerful with you know that was one of the premises of why we started rad chat was you know for number and i to try and make changes in practice it takes a long time you have to win everyone over whereas Michaela, you go into a department and say, well, this wasn't great and this this affected my experience. I bet you everyone jumps and goes, oh, we need to make a change. <laughs> so absolutely, I think it's really, really Thank important. You. Thank you. It's really important to get this feedback because like, I feel like personally, you need to know where you stand and um, the way you talk about things, like if it's on the appropriate level. So thank you for that.
to Michaela just thinking about kind of your studies and textbooks and examples and things like that. They usually show old or elderly people going through cancer diagnosis and things like that. What what have you seen and what have like you found maybe from your own experience moving forward in this area? Absolutely. So that's another interesting thing because you're in Czech Republic once you turn eighteen, you're in the adult section and there's no way or like you don't really get asked to if you can be in the one for children or young adults. So I was treated I was nineteen at that point and I was treated with um basically it was vastly elderly people when I was going to get my chemo done. Um, it was um, for Hodgkin's lymphoma and some other people with blood cancers, for example. But I would say the average age was around 70. There was no one in my age group. So it was kind of interesting to see for at least me. It's like on the, in this age, it's like you don't really fit in. So you don't fit in into the one for children, but you don't fit in into the one which is mostly for elderly or adults. And you're still in high school. You're an adult but you're actually not an adult you're still growing up so for me especially in this age i would say teenagers are in between these two groups which are very tricky to navigate i know there's a lot of support um for children who have cancer which is absolutely great but i feel like it's it's um getting lower with the more you um the older you are so at least for me it was during COVID also which had an effect on it there was um there wasn't really any type of support which was straightforward like if you need something or if you need to go somewhere to talk about this you can do this nothing was mentioned to me personally at least so i feel like it's very tricky to navigate it in this uh in this age what do you think michaela we need to improve for young adults with with a cancer diagnosis is there anything that you experienced that you thought this needs to change or this could make a big impact on me that maybe healthcare professionals or researchers academics have never considered before it's really tricky to think of it like that um because in a way i'm not sure i feel like what i needed as in my case was a little bit more empathy so for example in the waiting rooms for my chemo um, there were a lot of other people which I completely understand but some were going for transfusions for blood transfusions they weren't there for chemo or they were in a way in remission and I would say physically from what I could see they were more fit than I was because chemo I had a very drastic one at the beginning um, because my tumor was very aggressive so I literally couldn't stand I I would have to lie down or something so but nobody would let me sit down even like people when they were 40 50 so i had to lie on the hallway just like uh, literally behind the doors and i don't know this would get me very frustrated because i was like you're young i'm fit but at the same time i need some type of support and i understand i'm seen as like the fittest one here but it's not like that so yeah i would say have more empathy because the age doesn't you have a lot of empathy for very small children because you can see they don't understand what's going on you have a lot of empathy for elderly but i feel like it's this in between group when you feel like you're trying to push so they look healthy but they're not oh michaela i'm really sorry to hear that it's very sad and disappointing thank you for sharing with us 
Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. I just wanted to mention, so for me, with radiotherapy, actually the proton center was much nicer, like in in the way that the facilities were much better um, um, done for patients, I would say, because I feel like it's more on the, not private side, it's still funded by the government, but maybe it has... Um, it just has better facilities. It's newer. So for radiotherapy, I can see that, that there are some better things. So I, what I just wanted to address was that I was talking mainly about my chemotherapy. So yes, for anyone who's listening from my proton, proton radiotherapy, uh, they were great and everything was fine there. <laughs> it is really important though, isn't it? To consider that almost that pathway because I would also imagine you get led into a false sense of security. I don't know if you have lots of prehabilitation before a surgical intervention, you've got you know, the anaesthetist, the surgeon, the clinical nurse specialist, the ODP giving you all that support for surgery, and then you get to chemotherapy and you still have a clinical nurse specialist. Uh, you have very much your oncologist on support. And I, I do wonder whether sometimes there's that inequity across the pathway where patients are up and down, up and down, and almost led into a false sense of security, exactly as you've described. Whereas, you know, to have to lie down in a corridor, you know, we would never want that for any of our patients. Um, and that expectation that because you're younger, that would be acceptable is is heartbreaking. Um, but I do wonder whether, you know, the joining up of services the kind of smooth equity of what patients can expect across departments is something that really needs to be looked at and the integration of different services. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's exactly what would be needed. And I didn't even think about it because it was from this point of when I would talk to my oncologist to the point when I would go to chemo, but there was nothing really in between. And even though the staff was great, they were already doing their own thing and they like realistically they don't have time to say to each new patient this is what you should expect and this is how it's gonna go so you're just get thrown into these two sections and there's nothing in between so i feel like that's so important Patricia, slightly linked to that um obviously trying to look at how michaela doesn't fit the demographic of some people who go through a cancer diagnosis the cells that you use in the lab, are they of the same age group? Are they varied? How, how does that work? So um, I would say, because my project was mostly based on the in vivo studies, um, I do a lot of uh, mouse work. Um, and why do, why do we do that? Because it, it can, you know, more um, better recapitulate what we see in the human because we have intact immune system and um, you know we can see the reaction of the um, whole body basically to the different types of the treatment. To answer your question about the, the cell lines, um, personally I'm, uh, I'm working on, um, I'm work working with um, commercially available cell lines. Obviously these cell lines were established years years ago and these are from the patients uh, with different background genetic background and um, different um, age um, I have to say the, the most patient for example in in case of the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, the most patients are diagnosed um, at the 
quite um, older stage. So uh, they're older when they 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 get the first diagnosis on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So um, I personally don't work with the the samples uh, from the patient. Um, not right now. <laughs> not right uh, at that moment. But um, it, this is something that some people do and take that also into account um, to have samples with um, different genetic background from with patients with different genetic background and also um, at different stages of the disease plus um, the uh, the age can I ask what might be a really simplistic question and I'm going to ask this and then be like oh I am an academic I promise but do you then give how do you get mice to have Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, so actually non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, so what we do, we have a um, we have a mouse cell line that was um, also commercially available. Um, this was firstly um, the, the commercially available. Does that mean that I could go on Amazon and buy, buy yeah. some cells? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> this is uh, meaning that the uh, someone before established the cell line, we can basically grow them in an in incubator in plastic and um, we can expand the cells, we can do experiments, we can inject the cells uh, into the mice. So uh, this one particular cell line which I'm working with is, um, this was sp spontaneously arise uh, from um, in old mouse. So basically what the researcher did, um, they harvested, they collected the cells and um, expanded them. And now here we have <laughs> cells to, um, to, to work with. So what I'm doing, I'm just basically taking the cells from, so probably a lot of people um, are wondering like, okay, but what is she doing? How is she can introduce the, the cancer in mice? So basically what we do is take the cells, the proper amount of the cells and um, inject, I'm injecting into the subcutaneous area. So it's um, not into the, uh, in, not into muscles, but not, uh, in, so basically under the skin. Um, and I let them grow, I, I wait, around two weeks uh, in our case and then measure the tumor um, how it's progressing and then I can introduce any type of treatment and I can test whatever we basically whatever we want to test um, we can combine different treatments and I think it's a very powerful tool um, do you have access then Patricia to a linear accelerator how do you actually then deliver the radiotherapy? Uh, so we have uh, the access to the special machine um, called uh, Small Animals uh, Radiator. And uh, this allows us to take the CT scans before um, introducing the, the radiotherapy. So we firstly um, do the CT scan, then we see the area of the tumor, 
then change the end of software. Basically, it's uh, all based on the on the software, uh, apart from the, <laughs> the machine. Uh, we change in the software the the area that uh, will be targeted, and uh, then we deliver the radiation. So um, depending on the the type of project, depending on the uh, type of research, sometimes we do um, the whole body radiation. Um, me personally, I'm working um, to see how the local radiotherapy can change the tumor microenvironment, can improve the um, the CAR T cell therapy, um, and I'm using the local lo local radiation, so it just um, adjusts uh, on the software, adjusts the field and then deliver to the uh, mouse tumour, and that's it. And is the mouse alive? Like, would you immobilise it and then irradiate it? Or do you take slices of the cells and then irradiate the cells? Sorry, I'm just really, really intrigued as to how you do it. No, no, these are the good questions. Uh, we normally don't, don't even think about that, we just do it. Uh, but the, from, you know, the, um, the people perspective, it's like, yeah, Basically, how do how they do that? So uh, I did it. I do it uh, on live animals. Um, so I we use the um, anesthetic um, compounds to basically have uh, them uh, immobilized. Uh, so they're sleeping. They don't feel anything. Um, and then yeah, we put them on the on the special platform. Um, they still, they they breathe. Basically, they breathe in the air with the uh, anesthetic, um, and yeah, then we do uh, the the radiation. And so, do you learn how to do the anesthetic for the mice, or do you have an anesthetist or a veterinary clinician? I'm just, I've never, I've never really thought about it until now, and I'm just thinking. I'm envisaging, and this will make the audience laugh for any therapeutic radiographers out there, but I'm envisaging one of those mini linear accelerator Lego <laughs> models that you get, and you've got a little mouse, like immobilised, and then you're there kind of monitoring their anaesthetic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I have to say, um, the animal research is uh, very much controlled. So firstly, you have to learn, you have to go through... Um, specific um oh sorry <laughs> you have to go uh to take your to take part in the um in the lesson i mean is it like a training program? training program sorry uh you have to take part in a training program and then uh you take uh the exam and then you, uh, the home office will actually uh give your well, not <laughs> um, your personal license, but you have to work under the project license. So the project license, um, which is obtained by usually PI, um, who uh, who's the boss in the in the lab. Um, the project license states what you can do and what you cannot do. So um, there are very um, specific numbers of what you can like 
how much you can inject into mice, how much you can inject into rats, because people who also work uh, with rats or uh, other uh, other animals. Um, so yeah, this is a very much control um, area of research, and it has to be because we don't want to basically we don't want to make animal hurt more than they have to. So um, this is something the animal research. This is something that gives us a very valuable um, insight because it's this is just trying to recapitulate what we see in humans so we have the intact body immunocompetent uh, mouse we can study different aspects not only within the tumor but within the whole body and uh, obviously we need to do that with care and um, respect as well uh, these are the animals that you know um, they live to help us but uh, we have to we have to take care and take all the measurements to um, basically do what we have to do and try not to do anything uh, above that beyond that so there is a special area of uh, research called um, you know the three uh, R's which is uh, reduce replace and refinement and um, whenever we don't have to use animals we just don't do it we use cell system um, there are a lot of research now uh, with 3d cell culture models that can try to recapitulate um, what happens with tumor masses um, we have samples from the patients uh, who gave consent to use them for research um, so if there is no need to do that we just don't do but unfortunately some of the questions have to be um, asked by doing the animal models and before even going to the clinic any drug has to be um, tested in the preclinical settings which means um, using the utilizing the animals wow really really fascinating didn't know there were commercially available cell lines um so yeah learn something new every day and yeah thanks so much for explaining it in detail and joe don't worry i really enjoyed all the follow-up questions and i'm hoping everyone else did as well um so anyway patricia michaela we're coming towards the end of the episode and we normally like to end with top tips so that's for general public patients anyone really listening um, so yeah, Patricia, I don't know if you had some top tips you wanted to leave our guests today. Um, I would like to say that uh, if you're the patient, uh, we do know that you're terrified uh, when you get the diagnosis of the cancer, but please don't hesitate to reach out to the health professional, us, um, obviously to doctors and to us scientists. I'm very happy uh, to provide uh, my contact details if you have any questions 
um, I'm I'm happy to uh, to answer. Um, it's a from my perspective, it's a very important to engage patients with researchers and the other healthcare professionals. Uh, we need to work together because we have this the same aim. We need to work together uh, towards that aim. And um, we are trying, as a researchers, we are trying to um, find a novel treatments for the patients and the patients will give us a valuable um, insight from their perspective. Um, and together we can contribute to the development of their personalized medicine and hopefully to their be be better clinical outcomes. Thank you. Michaela? Um, so <laughs> I was thinking about it. There's a lot of, to say, but it's also very um, personal, I would say, about if you're a patient, um, just for me, what was most important was try to think about the positives, even in the darkest of times, just find out one thing during the day which makes you happy and never lose hope because no matter what you read online or what kind of research you do, it's not your story. Your experience is going to be completely individual and everyone is going to try to help you as much as they can. And even though you may be limited, um, no matter how much limited you are, there's always something that you can do which you love. And I'm sure that um, those are the little things were the ones which really kept me going and just never trying to look hope, uh, lose hope and don't try to lose your plans. You're going to do it one way or the other. You're going to find a way to do that. And from uh, for professionals or any students, I would say um, that um, I understand how busy people are and I understand that these people are here to help patients and they have so much compassion um, and empathy. Just sometimes maybe it's not um, spoken as much as it could be. So even if you take that 20 seconds to say the one, one sentence of I'm here for you and never be afraid to ask me anything or ask for anything. And if I say no, because I'm busy, I will think of, try to think of a way I can help you or someone else to, get to help you so I would say just if you say this one sentence the patient is gonna feel like you really are there for them and even though it's very obvious to you they really don't want to bother you so I would say just say that and you're gonna have a much greater better relationship with them and I'm sure about that oh, fantastic top tips and thoughts for our guests to take away thank you so much both of you it's been a very honest open insightful conversation i think there's a lot for people to take away including myself so yeah thank you so so much um and thank you to all of our guests for listening to red chat so your hosts today have been nam and joe Kansen and joe mcnamara if you're utilizing this podcast for cpd purposes consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited cpd certificate please complete the google form linked to the podcast so we do have a link uh, to an evaluation for this episode in the show notes it'd be really helpful for this project if you could take the time to fill it out um, so thank you very much for listening and take care